I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, and welcome to the Naked Scientists. Does midwinter make you want to eat all the food in your fridge, curl up in a duvet, and sleep until spring? Well, you're not alone. Plants and animals feel the same, but it's not always quite as good as it sounds. This week, we'll be exploring the world of hibernation and how it might be used to help human health. Plus, does detoxing deliver and the miracle of the microbiome? I'm Connie Orbach, she's Katani, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Patients often say that one of their worst nightmares when undergoing surgery is that they might wake up in the middle of their operation. And, scarily enough, it does happen. But now scientists at Cambridge University have discovered a unique brainwave pattern that can signal when a person has been effectively anaesthetised, which should, they say, make surgery safer. Chris Smith spoke to Srivast Shenu, who's leading the project. There are 60,000 surgeries done in the United States alone every day. Now, the challenge doctors face is how much drug do you give somebody to put them under and how do you know that they're actually unconscious before you actually cut them open? While doctors are pretty good at solving that problem, one or two of every thousand people report having woken up during surgery. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, but if you add up the numbers, it's twenty to 30,000 people every year. It's also a pretty big deal for the person who wakes up. Absolutely. You know, it's a very traumatic, very terrifying experience. It's, it's the number one thing that people report after surgery as having caused them traumatic distress. Not the actual operation itself, not the fact that they were cut open, but the fact that they were aware of what was going on. They really don't like that, and we'd like to prevent that as scientists and as doctors. Why is that such a hard nut to crack? Why doesn't an anaesthetist have a simple test they can do that tells them this person's asleep? That's a really good question. It's basically asking, why don't we have a test for consciousness? Now, this is exactly what we'd all like to have, a test of the level of consciousness, just like you have the test of a level of blood pressure. In the current situation, doctors don't have that. So they do very simple things like measuring blood pressure or measuring sort of the movement that a person has before deciding, well, this person's unconscious, we can proceed with surgery. So they're using indirect measures. What we'd like to do is go ask the brain how conscious it is and then decide whether somebody's ready for surgery or not. How did you do that? So what we did here is to use a measure called EEG, which stands for electroencephalography. So what we do is basically put these little electrodes on the scalp of a person who is being anesthetized. It's completely painless, completely non-invasive. They don't really feel it. And it measures the tiny electrical currents that the brain's producing all the time. And it gives us a couple of key signatures that tells us how conscious the brain is. Right, so I guess what you're saying is you take somebody, you measure those signatures when they're awake, you put them to sleep. You know they were asleep because you can ask them later, but you can, you can see how those signatures changed when they were saying, or not saying, they're awake or not. And that means you've then got a sort of EEG signature of unconsciousness. Yeah, and we, can, we went further. What we did was, while we measured the EEG, we got an objective measure of how aware they were, got them to press a button when they heard a bing, another button when they heard a bong, just so that we know that they're responsive. We also measured the amount of this sedative, this anesthetic, in their blood, so that we can say, okay, what in the EEG, what in the brain, links to the amount of 
drug in the blood and what in the EEG links to the fact that this person says they're aware. So we can link the two to find out what are the useful signatures in the brain then link to the fact that people say they're aware and when does that stop? When do they become unaware? Anaesthetists often say there's a really big difference between individuals. They might give you just a whiff of a drug and you'd be out like a light. I might take the amount it would take to knock out an elephant. We're both similarly statured people. Did you see that sort of relationship, that there is a tiny amount of drug needed in some people to induce the same state of unconsciousness compared with others? That was the most fascinating bit of our data. What we did was we gave people just enough drug to sort of put them on the cusp of consciousness. That allowed us to basically find people, some of whom, given a particular level of drug, were completely under, and others with the same level of drug were fully alert, full responsive. We don't know why this is the case, but our data gives us a clue. Because what it suggests is that the way their brain activity looks like before they get the drug seems to affect who is going to go under and who isn't. And that's a fascinating insight for now applying this idea to being able to figure out how much the drug to give somebody to make sure that they're under. Right, so not only is this potentially a monitoring tool for making sure someone is asleep and they're staying asleep, but also it could be used predictively. How much drug am I likely to need to give this person to get them off in the first place? Exactly. Currently, what is done in, in, in modern clinical settings is that they have something like a MARSH model, as it's called, where they take your body weight and your body mass and say they have some internal model to calculate how much drug you need. Clearly, that model doesn't do the job every time. What we'd like to do is enhance these sorts of models to bring in the brain and say, well, based on this person's brain, this is how much drug they would need to make sure they're under for surgery. You only looked here at a small number of people. This is just a preliminary test. Surely you're looking at, at healthy, fit individuals. What about those people who wake up on on the theatre table? Would it not be appropriate now to go and find who they are and see if you can get the similar sorts of tests in them and see what your, your brain EEG measures would predict about them? Absolutely. I think this is exactly the next step. This study is very much a science study. You know, We haven't actually gone to the clinic yet. But the next step would be to try and make some sort of device that we can trial in that context. Because there, you're talking about people who are no longer healthy, who already have chronic conditions. And in those cases, you really don't want to risk overdosing such people. So we, what we try to do is exactly that. Try to take this to the operating theatre and see how well it can perform in the real world. Srivash Shanu, he's a neuroscientist at Cambridge University and that study came out this week in PLOS Computational Biology. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Connie Orbach, and with Kat Arney. Still to come in the news, the discovery of the brightest supernova ever seen. But first, Kat is settling down with some herbal tea and a stick of celery to bust a common misconception at this time of the year. Now, I'm sure that your Christmas and New Year was just like mine, a model of restraint packed full of healthy steamed veg, lean protein, plenty of water and lots of bracing exercise. Oh, who am I kidding? I've eaten and drunk so much that if you cut me, I'd bleed port and gravy. Luckily, the internet and other media are full of people offering, or rather selling, advice and products to help us all detox after the festive season. The shelves of health food shops and pharmacies groan with the post-Christmas bulge of detox stuff, from pills, tea bags, smoothies and potions, to shampoos, colour-changing foot pads and even detox hair straighteners. But what exactly is detoxing? And does it actually do anything? 
Well, for a start, there is a valid medical definition of detoxing. It's one that involves being in hospital after an acute episode of drug, alcohol or other type of poisoning and having urgent medical treatment. Not sipping on a carrot smoothie because you feel a bit run down and hung over after the party season. Many so-called detox regimes involve things like fasting for short periods of time, eating only fruit and veg or other limited diets, cutting out certain foods like wheat, dairy, caffeine, sugar and alcohol, and taking certain pills and potions to help flush out the toxins from your body. I guess it all sounds kind of sciencey, but the detox peddlers can't actually provide any solid evidence at all for what these mysterious toxins might actually be, or how their regimes and products help to get rid of them. Furthermore, severe low-calorie detox diets may help you lose weight in the very short term, which is mostly water, due to your body having to metabolise water-storing energy-rich molecules like glycogen to keep you alive. Unlike a slower, steadier, calorie-controlled weight loss plan, crash detox diets are likely to leave you feeling sick, headachy, dehydrated, weak and cranky. It's not the toxins leaving your body, you're starving yourself. The key thing to know is this. Your body does an amazing job of detoxifying itself, all day, every day. If your body really accumulated large amounts of what the scientific world classes as toxins, then you'd start to feel very ill very fast and need urgent medical attention. The liver does a sterling job of getting rid of toxic substances without the need for a helping hand. It's packed full of enzymes that convert nasty chemicals into less harmful ones and then pass them on in the kidneys or gut to be peed and pooped out. Your kidneys are also hard at work sifting out nasty stuff from the bloodstream and sending it to be flushed down the loo. And your lymphatic system, that's your lymph vessels, lymph nodes and spleen, are quite happy getting on with the job of filtering out foreign muck like bacteria and viruses without the need for stimulation from unproven detox products. The detox industry also seems to have a woeful lack of actual chemistry knowledge. For example, fruits like apples contain very small amounts of the chemical formaldehyde, while veg such as broccoli contain traces of cyanide, both of which are toxic in high doses. So why don't the detox fans class these as toxins, eh? Well, incidentally, this is why it's also a good reason not to go overboard with those superfood smoothies, as you could be taking in much higher amounts of naturally occurring plant-based chemicals than you'd normally need, with unknown effects. The dose makes the poison, of course, but all the foods we eat contain a wide range of all kinds of chemicals that can potentially harm us in high enough doses, whether that's a chunky chocolate bar from the corner shop or the freshest organic apple straight from the field. And in some cases, herbal detox products may contain chemicals that act as drugs on the body, yet these aren't tested or regulated in the same way that equivalent pharmaceutical products would be, and also have a risk of unwanted interactions with any conventional medications that a person might be taking. So, what should you do if, like me, you've consumed so much that your bloodstream is now 90% gin, or you feel like you've actually turned into a pig in blanket after eating so many? Well, according to real science, from clinically trained registered dietitians rather than internet nutritionists, if you've overindulged over the festive season and want to get back on a healthier track, the best things to do are the usual boring stuff we already know about, deep down. Cut back on the booze and cakes, drink enough water to get you hydrated, get some physical activity in your life, eat a healthy balanced diet with lots of fruit, veg, fibre and some lean protein, and get plenty of sleep. If you manage to do all that, 
you'll more than likely lose weight and feel a lot better without any need for fancy, expensive detox products. Now, if only I could turn that into a multi-million selling diet book, I'd make a fortune. Well, I'm always looking for an excuse not to detox, so thank you for that, Kat. Now to your microbiome. That's the word that refers to the hordes of bacteria that live in and on you, and it's extremely important. These bugs affect your health and even your personality. However, in the Western world, we're missing some diversity. In fact, compared to traditional non-industrialised tribes and populations, we have about a third fewer different species of microbe living in our intestines. Theories why range from antibiotic use to cleaner living, but a new study this week has provided evidence that at least some of it could be down to our diet. Georgia Mills has been shedding some light where, well, the sun doesn't usually shine, beginning with the study's co-author, Erica Sonnenberg, who's from Stanford Medical School. In our study, we really wanted to look at the effect of diet and particularly dietary fibre. If you look at these traditional populations, they consume an amount of dietary fibre that far surpasses what we consume in the West, something like almost 10 times as much. And we know that dietary fiber are really the major currency within our gut. This is the food that our bacteria use to you know, become more abundant in the gut. And so we wondered if you starve your microbes of dietary fiber, what does that mean for that community? And we think that this may be potentially one of the reasons why our microbiota is Uh, so much less diverse than what we see in these high-fiber eating traditional populations. How did you test this theory? Basically, what we did is we had a group of mice that we colonized with a human microbiota. And then we divided those mice into two groups, one that we fed a high-fiber diet and the other group that we fed a low-fiber diet. And what we found was that the mice on the low-fiber diet, the diversity of bacteria in their gut dropped pretty dramatically while they're on the low-fiber diet. We bred them for an additional four generations. And what we found was with each generation, there was a further loss of microbial diversity within the gut of these mice to the point that by the time we got to the fourth generation, there were quite a few species of bacteria that were now no longer present in the gut of those mice. What's more, putting the mice back on this high-fibre diet doesn't result in those extinct bacteria species coming back. It looks like once they're gone, they're gone. But is this really a big deal? We know that an acute drop in diversity, say from taking a round of antibiotics, opens your gut up to the potential that it would get colonized by a pathogenic bacteria. So that's, uh, for example, C. difficile. And actually, one of the most effective treatments for that is a reintroduction of microbial diversity through a fecal transplant. Long term, there's been several studies looking at the microbiota of individuals that are obese or have metabolic syndrome, autoimmune diseases, and in all these cases, their microbiota diversity is much lower than what we see in healthy populations. Now, we don't know if that drop in diversity caused those diseases or is contributing to them, but it does indicate that there's some connection potentially between a low diversity microbiota and many of our Western diseases that are are rising so rapidly. If this does turn out to be a problem, what about those faecal transplants Erica mentioned? This procedure, which involves taking poo from a healthy person and putting it into an ill person to restore their microbiota, is now used in many countries across the world. Tim Spector is the Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and the author of The Diet Myth. He's been on the show before to tell us about faecal transplants. There's uh, usually several ways of doing these transplants. Traditionally, it was through a tube through your nose, 
where you put, you put up the liquidized poo, essentially, down through the nose into the small intestine. Or you could pass a tube up through your bottom, given as an enema. If having a poo-filled tube up your bottom or down your nose doesn't sound like your cup of tea, using capsules of frozen specimens could be the solution. There was some debate about whether this would work, but research this week from McMaster's University in Canada has shown the transplants can indeed work after the bacteria has been frozen, as Tim explained. This was a study of over 200 people, and they randomised them to uh, the frozen samples or the fresh samples and essentially found no difference between the two methods. So it looks like the good news is that you can store these samples for a long time as long as you store them well. They seem to be equally effective and the evidence seems to show that the way in which you give them doesn't matter so much for severe illnesses. So you can give them by tube or by these um, acid-resistant capsules, uh, which some bright sparkers renamed crapsules. There have been some other, I suppose, worries or concerns about poo transplants because gut bugs have such an impact on our bodies as a whole. Exactly. So as we're discovering that our microbes are essentially key to many of our healthy processes, our immune system, our digestion, our metabolism, uh, whether we get fat or thin, and also increasingly our emotions. So clearly any change you're making to the gut microbe could have other far-reaching consequences. And there are about two case reports now of people who have received these um, transplants but have ended up putting on a lot of weight afterwards. And turns out that the donor was of above average weight. There's also the other potential worry which hasn't been shown yet, but in animals you can certainly transmit some mental illnesses stress and anxiety. So if you check your donors, uh, don't end up as uh, mass murderers or psychopaths because uh, 10 years down the line, you could be causing other problems. As Erica said earlier, our gut bugs are much less diverse in the West. So could this transpusion be the answer? A colleague of mine, Jeff Leach, um, who's co-founder of the American Gut Project, is actually on a personal quest to, to make himself the most diverse human on the planet. And as I explained in some detail in my book, went to Africa and picked a healthy tribesman, uh, hunter-gatherer type from the Hasdard tribe, and got a donation from him and did a transplant himself using a turkey baster. <laughs> and uh, he claims that his diversity increased, but he hasn't yet noticed any massive health benefits. Or I'm imagining any health Problems? problems? No, exactly. He's a robust Texan, so he's quite tough. But at the moment, most people think he's mad uh, <laughs> rather than um, uh, some people would say he's pioneering. But at the moment, we don't know the side effects of whether um, a microbe from, say, Africa inside us is going to have the same effects. So what might be great for Africans might actually be harmful for us. Georgia Mills speaking there to Erica Sonnenberg and King's College London's Tim Spector. One of the biggest explosions astronomers have ever seen appeared recently in space, but scientists are struggling to decide what could have caused it. The best guess so far is that it was something called a superluminous supernova, which is the cataclysmic explosion produced when a large star reaches the end of its life. But the explosion this time was so powerful that it doesn't seem to fit with any of our existing theories as David Bercier, astrophysicist from Liverpool John Moores University, explained to Felicity Bedford. 
this one is just the brightest that has ever been found. Something like 500 billion times the brightness of the sun. In terms of space, it's at a fairly large distance because what makes this event unique is that it's also very rare. So if you want to find rare objects, uh, you also have to look at a very large chunk of universe. And this object, uh, we're talking about 3 billion light years away. Wow. What exactly is it that makes this star, this supernova, so bright? Well, that's part of the problem. In a sense, it's much easier to discover a supernova than to understand what makes it shine. And it is so bright, so much brighter than normal supernovae that we think we understand, that uh, for this particular event that we call Assassin 15LH, these models are, are really stretched because the total amount of energy that has been emitted in the first few months are really pushing the limits of what models can explain. So it's a challenge, but you must have some ideas. We can try and speculate, yes. There are, there are several um, models around, several theories. These uh, superluminous supernovae, some of them are powered, in a sense, by the interaction of the matter that is ejected in the explosion with what is just lying around the star at the time of the explosion. Another possibility is what triggers the explosion is that the core of the star where nuclear reactions were happening, this core collapses and forms what we call a neutron star. And in some cases, this neutron star may have uh, an enormously large magnetic field and it may be spinning very, very fast. And that is one possibility to explain the brightness of these superluminous supernovae. What is it that makes supernovae so interesting? Why are you studying them? Different types of supernovae are essentially responsible for a lot of what we call the periodic table of the elements. Very early in the universe, after, after a few minutes, there was just a lot of hydrogen, uh, some helium, and, and very little of, of uh, a few other elements. Whereas supernovae make a lot of the elements, the carbon and oxygen, most of it has been made in, uh, in supernovae. Sounds like something that's fairly difficult to miss. How did you detect this star? This assassin survey scans the whole sky about every other night using small telescopes, actually, about 14 centimeter telescopes. There is software to uh, look at the images when they come in and to try and find objects that were not there before. Is the international nature of this project central to its success? You're, you're saying we're looking at the whole night sky. That simply wouldn't be possible without the telescopes that are scattered all over the world. The sky never sleeps. One of the principal investigators of the project puts it. He said there's always an assassin awake. There's, so there's always, always an assassin always awake. Fantastic. Of, there's always one of us awake somewhere in the world able to do something. Could you draw all of this together and summarise what you found? So we found this, uh, this object, this extraordinarily luminous supernova that beats the record at least by a factor of two in terms of brightness compared to uh, the second brightest. Traditionally, scientists are very conservative and, and we say, okay, this is weird. What else can it be? You know, this, a, su a bright supernova is, 
a standard explanation, but we have to make sure it's not something else and, and nature is not playing a trick. We think we have reasonably good arguments to rule out other explanations, such as uh, an extraordinarily massive black hole that is regularly accreting matter. There is no sign of anything like that happening. We think it's not a tidal disruption event. It's not a star that passed very close to a supermassive black hole and got ripped apart. And essentially, we're left with this explanation. It is a single star that exploded, but we don't really know why it is so bright. It is really stretching current models almost to the breaking point. David Bercier. He and his colleagues published their observations of that massive celestial explosion this week in the journal Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Connie Orbach and Kat Arney. And now, on to the main part of our show. And I can't help feeling just a little bit sleepy. It feels like it's dark all the time right now and that winter will never end. Outside of the equator, seasons are a fundamental part of the rhythm of life. In the winter, plants and animals bed down, ready to burst forth again in the spring. But how do they know when it's time to hibernate? And time to wake up. And what can some animals' more extreme yearly patterns teach us about staying healthy as humans? It's time to snuggle down and hear all about the hidden world of hibernation. But before we get too embedded, it might be useful to know why we have seasons at all. I checked in with Professor of Planetary Geosciences David Rovery to find out. We have seasons because the Earth's axis is not exactly upright relative to its orbit it's tilted at 23 and a half degrees in northern hemisphere winter the earth's north pole is tilted away from the sun by 23 and a half degrees so uh, the sun is low in the sky and isn't seen at all from near the north pole in northern hemisphere summer uh, the earth has gone halfway around the sun but the axis is still pointing the same direction in space So the North Pole is tilted at 23 and a half degrees towards the sun, so the sun never sets there. And at uh, spring and autumn, halfway in between those two points, you've got days of equal length because the axial tilt is neither towards nor away from the sun. So let me get this right. The tilt's staying in the same direction, but as it's orbiting the sun, that tilt is in some places directed away from the sun and in other places directed towards it. And it's a mirror image between North and South hemispheres. When we've got summer in the northern hemisphere it's winter in the southern hemisphere and so does that tilt ever change the tilt does change we think over about 41,000 years it it changes slowly between about 22 and about 24 and a half degrees it's a very slow very slight change in the tilt which means that over geologic time um, seasons have been pretty much the same do other planets have this, this tilt of their poles, or is this just us? Uh, no, we're not the only planet with seasons. Mercury has none. Its axis is exactly 90 degrees to its orbit. But Mars has a tilt that's 25.2 degrees at the moment. It, it has seasons. And we think that Mars's axis, axial tilt wobbles rather more extremely than the Earth's. And it's possible that Mars's axis wobbles by more than Earth's because Earth's axial tilt is stabilised by the presence of a large moon. That was Professor David Rovery from the Open University. Now, we've all heard of the bear who sleeps through winter or the bird that migrates to warmer climates. But 
how do they know when the time is right? Francis Ebling is Professor of Neuroendocrinology at the University of Nottingham. He's here to explain why. Hi, Francis. Hello from a snowy Nottingham. Wow. So, yeah, you're definitely getting the, the winter of it. It's just a bit cold and wet here, to be honest. So, you know, we have got the winter season upon us. But how do animals respond to the seasons, to the seasonal changes? What's going on here? Well, the key is that most organisms measure day length and night length, which provides a reliable geophysical cue. And they can use that information to regulate an internal calendar and prepare for the changing of the seasons. Animals have to prepare for winter when climatic conditions are harsh, when food supply might be limited or very unpredictable. And the most dramatic example of preparation for winter are those animals that go into hibernation, which is in effect a suspended animation. They drop their metabolic rates, they drop their body temperature. So how are animals actually measuring this change in day length? I mean, assuming they don't have a clock and go, oh, you know, nights are drawing in. Uh, how, how do animals who don't have clocks and calendars work out what time of year it is? You know, what's, what's going on at that kind of level? Our understanding is that they can measure the actual hours of light and hours of darkness. So we and other mammals perceive light through our eyes, but it's not the rods and cones that people might have heard of as our normal cells that measure light and help us see colour in black and white. It's a set of special cells at the front of the ganglion measure light intensity and the duration of the day. And they use that information to signal to our pineal gland. And the pineal gland secretes a hormone, melatonin, but just at night. So as the length of the night gets longer in autumn, as winter approaches, the duration of melatonin secretion increases, and that in turn signals to the pituitary gland at the base of the brain and to the hypothalamus just above the pituitary gland. And it's that part of the brain that controls body temperature, controls reproduction, controls food intake and fattening. We know about animals like bears and things like that, that that go into hibernation in the winter. And I certainly feel right now like crawling back under my duvet. But humans don't seem to have this kind of hibernating, you know, wanting to bed down for the winter, do we? Humans probably evolved as, as tropical apes in equatorial regions, but we are very much aware of the changing seasons. For some people, that impacts upon their mood such that they develop seasonal affective disorder, a form of depression in winter. But it's a very interesting form of depression in that they tend to sleep more and eat more, particularly carbohydrates and fats, which is atypical for other forms of depression. So we are subliminally aware of the seasons, and it affects some of us more than others. How are you studying these processes of seasonal change and, and hibernation? My laboratory at the University of Nottingham is funded by the Biology and Biotechnology Research Council specifically to understand how it is that some animals prepare for winter by reducing their appetite and increasing the way that they burn the fat reserves they've stored. So we study these in Siberian hamsters these hamsters show a form of hibernation called torpor where they drop their metabolic rate and their heart rate and their breathing rate for just part of each day. But in addition to that, they spontaneously reduce the amount that they eat. 
And they've evolved that strategy because, of course, in winter there are very limited food supplies. And instead they survive winter, keep the body going, by burning huge amounts of abdominal fat that they've stored over the summer in anticipation of winter. And and very briefly, what can we learn from your work about maybe how other animals and maybe even humans respond to winter or just regulate our metabolism generally? Well, I think the important thing from our work is it shows that the mammalian brain is capable of spontaneously reducing our motivation to eat and our appetite and capable of increasing the way we burn fat. So if we could understand those mechanisms, then potentially we have some new targets that the pharmaceutical industry and the health services can look as to help us lose weight and be healthier. Certainly be a good thing that we could learn from hamsters. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks very much. That's Francis Ebling from the University of Nottingham. Now, had you just awoken from an extra long, grizzly bear-like hibernation, you would be forgiven for thinking that it was springtime in the UK. Daffodils blooming and buds on trees are not usually associated with the depths of winter. Like animals, plants have also adapted to a seasonal planet. But how do they do this? I went to the Cambridge Botanic Gardens to speak to plant scientist Dr Philip Wigg. Hi, sorry. Connie from the and Hello. Uh, <laughs> Connie's interested in plants that are flowering a little bit earlier. I don't know if you've noticed, but lately it seems that the plants are... Well, a little out of sync. I can show you, because I took a picture of them on the 23rd of December. These daffodils are coming over there now. 23rd of December, did you say? That's Simon, one of the gardeners here in Cambridge. And he wouldn't usually expect to see daffodils until February. Plant scientist Professor Philip Wigg talked me through what was happening. Plants need to know what the season is, so they measure how long the day is, And that will often help them know whether it's spring or autumn or summer or winter. They can use that information to plan their life cycle and make decisions about when they should flower. And the other thing they also use is temperature. And these unfortunate daffodils have really been relying on temperature information. So we had a really warm December. And as a result of that, these daffodils probably thought it was springtime. And so they've actually started to flower. And now we've got a very cold patch and the frost will probably kill these flowers. Humans maybe carb load in the winter, some animals migrate, some animals go underground or sleep. What do plants do throughout the year in response to temperature? Plants uh, can't move, so they're stuck in one place. So they have to be really smart about the decisions they make. And the reason for that is that when you're a growing plant or you're making flowers, um, those growing structures are really sensitive to extremes of temperature, so either heat or cold. So if you're a plant, you need to really fine-tune your life cycle so that you're growing and flowering at those times of year when the temperatures are not too high and not too low. We don't usually think of plants being able to maybe feel or see light or or temperature. Um, We don't think of them as sensory organisms. So how on earth are they doing this? Yeah, that's remarkable, isn't it? So you often look at a plant and you might think it's sort of sitting there rather passively, but actually they're constantly looking and sensing the environment and they integrate that information to change gene expression. And that's what we do in, the, in our research laboratory. We try and understand the molecules that are controlling these responses of plants to the seasons. Oh, wow. Can you show me a bit of what you're doing here? Great. So we should maybe go over to the growth rooms where we can see some of the plants we use in our research to understand how plants grow. That sounds great. Let's go. 
Keen to get into the warm, we went underground to find a series of doors, each leading to a room heated at a different temperature and all filled with plants. Now be warned, all this heating can get a little noisy. Exactly, so these are what we call the walk-in chambers. So I'll open this one here. Oh, wow. Oh, it feels so futuristic. It's really bright in here. It's quite noisy. And it's got kind of a few rows of, of trolleys with lots of different plants on them. What have we got here? So this is a room that's kept at low temperature. If you look at these plants here, they're uh, growing quite slowly. And then these plants, by comparison, they're growing very fast. So we've tricked these plants into thinking it's actually warmer than it really is. So that just shows you that by changing a single gene in the plant, we can change what season the plant thinks it's growing in, which is quite interesting. The plants were all the same species, but looked so different that you would never guess. Some were tiny and crest-like, others were huge and overflowing. This shows how important the plant's environment is to their growth pattern, and also that if only a couple of genes are involved, the pathway for environmental responses of this kind must be really, really specific. I had lots more questions, but all that noise isn't that great for radio, so it seemed best to continue the conversation elsewhere. We mentioned this outside, but what we saw was all those plants blooming early due to a very warm winter. What does this mean in the long run if we have a changing environment for the plants? Can they adapt to it, or is it something that's going to cause us problems? Well, it's very interesting. We're sort of in the middle of a huge sort of global experiment, and it's caused very large changes in, in the behaviour of plants. What we've already seen is with a one-degree C change, plants are flowering earlier when it gets warmer, and the distribution of plants is moving. And what's very important also is that plants are not all responding equally. So some plants will do relatively better than other plants. And so it does seem that plants that mainly use temperature to make decisions about their, their life cycle, they seem to be doing better than plants that mainly use photoperiod. And you can imagine that a plant that mainly uses the day lengths to determine when to flower or when to start growing, that might lose out. If you have a warm spring, other plants might come up earlier and outcompete plants that are waiting for, for long days when actually they could have started growing earlier. So wild plants have already changed, and they're changing a lot. Then on top of that, you've got to think about what's going to happen to crops. On average, it's estimated that for every 1 degree C centigrade increase in temperature, crop yields, they go down by about 10%. So that's something we've really got to watch out for. And I guess something that your work here will be really important for in the future if we have to adapt to these changing climates. Well, it's, it's certainly a very interesting time to be doing this sort of research. And our lab and many labs around the world are really interested in this question of how you identify the actual genes that are enabling the plant to sense temperature. So if we identify these, these genes, then that has a great opportunity to enable us to breed plants that have a better response to warm temperature stress. That was Philip Wigg at the Cambridge Botanic Gardens. Now how to feed a growing population in the face of climate change is a big problem and one we'll be exploring in depth in two weeks' time with the future of food security, so tune in to hear more about that. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Connie Orbeck and she's Katani. This week we're hunkering down into hibernation. We've heard how changes in sunlight cause some animals to stop eating and how plants are hypersensitive to temperature. But what can we do with all that knowledge? Though the idea of a nice long sleep may sound pretty tempting, animals actually go through an awful lot. 
They are continually cooling and reheating their bodies, putting huge stress on their organs, and some even make themselves diabetic. Hibernation is clearly no picnic, and things get even worse, as in an attempt to save energy, animals will dismantle the synapses in their brains. These are the parts of the neuron that send and receive signals, and without them, well, we're all pretty useless. But what's even more amazing is that when it's time to wake up again, they'll put them back together, just as they were. Professor Giovanna Malucci is clinical neuroscientist at Cambridge University, and she's here to explain how this amazing fact is part of her research on Alzheimer's. Hi, Giovanna. Hi. What is going on here? How are they dismantling their synapses, and how on earth are they putting them back together again? I think you've heard already from our other speakers that there's lots of processes that slow down and a shutdown for hibernation and including metabolism. And one way to save energy is to stop the brain using its energy. And the dismantling of synaptic connections between brain cells is a way of doing that. What happens is on cooling, uh, there's a retraction of the what we call the dendritic arbor, you know, all the connections and branches of of a neuro, of a brain cell that's connecting to another, and the actual contacts, like it, it's like unplugging a plug from its socket. That's just, they're just removed so that no energy flows. When they rewarm, there's a signal to reconnect these structures. How that exactly happens is absolutely not known and very, very interesting to us. But we do know a lot about the processes that drive that regenerative capacity. Is this happening all over the brain? Yes, it's happening all over the brain and all of us all the time. There's a balance between pruning and generational regeneration to maintain a sort of status quo. And learning and memory need new synapses and then um, you prune and get rid of all your excess synapses when you sleep and when you and, and at other conditions. But the, the capacity for regenerating synapses and refreshing them is part of repair and it's called structural synaptic plasticity. So let me just get this right. What's happening in the animals with hibernation is a much more extreme version of actually something that's happening all the time Correct. in, exactly in right. humans that's... and animals. So how have you been using this then in your work? So we, we know that in the uh, degenerative, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, which is the prototypical disease, but also many of the others, the earliest thing that happens before you get the brain cell degeneration is that synapses are lost. And as synapses are lost memory goes down, what we call cognitive function goes down. And it's just not clear why there's, why there's this early loss of synapses, which is such an important stage in these diseases. And it's important, A, because it gives you symptoms, but B, because it's reversible. So that's the stage before the brain cells have died, before the neurons have died, when you can actually, if you can increase synapse number, you can restore memory. And, and so it's a very attractive, um, targetable point of intervention. And our Starting hypothesis was that the reason that synapses are lost in early in Alzheimer's disease and early in, in Parkinson's and other disorders is because there's a failure of this regenerative capacity that is part of our normal structural plasticity. And we used hibernation or induced laboratory hibernation in mice to test the ability of synapses to re regenerate themselves in mouse neurodegeneration models. And what did you find out? What's happening? So we, well, first of all, we found, um, we found very interestingly that mice which don't normally hibernate can hibernate in, in all the ways that you would normally expect. So if you cool them, they'll drop their body temperature, they'll dismantle their synapses and they'll go into torpor. And then when you rewarm them, they come completely back to normal again. 
And what we found out was that normal mice dismantle and reassemble their synapses, but the mice that we used that had neurodegeneration models, Alzheimer-type mice and a mice with a sort of prion disease, which is another neurodegenerative disease, they failed to reassemble their synapses. So they could unplug the plugs, but they couldn't put them back in again. And this uh, lack of regenerative capacity gives us a good idea of, of why there's such an early loss in synapses. Did you get a bit deeper into this? Did you get to see uh, the, the protein that's involved? Is that right? Yeah, we did. So we discovered that um, um, hibernation and cooling does two things to you. It shuts down metabolism and it shuts down protein synthesis. But there's a group of proteins that are upregulated and these are called cold shock proteins and they're a relatively new family of proteins. And one of these, which is called RBM3, which is RNA binding motif protein 3, is, is highly expressed in the brain. And by being upregulated during hibernation, that protein keeps a number of really important critical messenger RNAs that you're going to need for survival ready for, to, to make into proteins when you wake up. Um, and we found out that RBM3 is failing in the Alzheimer's brains. And if we put it back in, we can rescue them. So you found this protein, RBM3. Where do you go now? So we didn't find the protein. I mean, the protein is a known um, cold shock protein. What we've done is associated it with this failure of structural plasticity in neurodegenerative disease in, in Alzheimer type uh, mouse models. And what we now want to do is understand the relevance for human disease, because what we found in the mice is that if you put the protein back in, it's incredibly protective. It gives them new synapses. It stops them getting neurodegeneration it stops them getting memory loss and it protects them in the long term um, and you can do that um, either by cooling the mice very early to, to boost their endogenous or their own RBM3 levels or by putting it in artificially um, so now obviously this is a way in for neuroprotection for for human disease but cooling itself is not realistic or practical in the long term, it is used medically. It's used in newborn babies that have had hypoxic damage. It's used in um, post-stroke and it's used in cardiac surgery and in many forms of neurosurgery. Um, so we think that that's acting through RBM3 and our um, ideal would be to be able to manipulate RBM3 levels for protection without having to cool. Wow, so that sounds really interesting. Thank you for coming in. That's Giovanna Malucci from the University of Cambridge. And to continue with our sleepy theme, it's time to close the show now with Question of the Week. Felicity Bedford has been looking into James's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. So what are the bags that you get under your eyes when you're tired? One thought, they're facial markings that have evolved to warm people away from crabby bad sleepers. Bags under someone's eyes are a stereotypical clue that they're feeling a bit tired. But how do they form and why? I spoke to Dr Sean Lanigan, President of the British Cosmetic Dermatology Group, to find out more. Firstly, what exactly are these bags that James is asking about? The eye bag area covers the lower orbital rim, where the hole in the skull accommodates the eyes. The skin underneath the eyes covers muscles, fat and blood vessels. Because it is so thin, it is relatively transparent so you can see through to the tissues underneath. The main changes people notice in this area are dark circles and puffiness. I certainly notice dark circles in the morning. Why are some people lucky and always seem to be fresh-faced? Dark circles are often seen in people with a familial or genetic tendency to have them. How dark that area is can be to do with your skin pigment. And if you rub tired eyes, you can thicken the skin and make it look puffy and darker. 
Another factor contributing to dark circles is blood, which has red, blue and purple pigments. These colours are seen through the skin and can change with skin thickness. The body responds to tiredness by making hormones to help boost energy levels, such as cortisol. These hormones result in more blood in the skin, enlarging blood vessels and retention of water, which all contribute to darker circles and puffiness. Lifestyle choices such as late nights, excessive alcohol and coffee consumption will all influence cortisol levels, running the risk of puffy, dark eyes. I think I'll be going to bed early to try and shift my dark circles for now. While puffy eye bags don't seem to serve a purpose, is James correct in thinking eye bags are a reliable warning of someone who's in need of a good night's sleep? Sadly, puffy eye bags are more common as you get older, as changes in elastic tissue and collagen mean the skin is less elastic and stretches. The pads of fatty tissue found in your eye socket creep downwards over time. This is worse in people who have had a lot of sun exposure on their face. Whatever your age, water moves in and out of the skin through the day and night. This is helped by gravity and the heart pumping blood around. When we lie down, fluid sits in the loose eyelid skin as there is no help from gravity to move it. So eye bags are often more obvious after a night lying down, whether we sleep or not. Over time, the effects of gravity will slowly cause bagginess, which will be persistent. Thanks, Sean. So, James, eye bags are not always a sign that you need a nap. In fact, depending on the cause, lying down could actually make puffy eyes worse. Our next question is from Gaeth. Why do humans have such a variety of appearances? Is a little variation a good thing? Send your suggestions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you to our live guests, Francis Ebling, Rob Henning and Giovanni Malucci, and also to everyone else that was involved. Next week, we're getting sucked into the world of black holes, starting with, what actually are they? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye.